Colossians 1, 24 through the end of the chapter. And the title, The Mystery Hidden from Ages and Generations. But let's pray before we open his holy word. Father, glorious are thy truths surrounding the rich and wondrous gospel of thy beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel at the sheer grandeur of Christ, who as the image of thee, the invisible God, is Lord supreme over the universe, the created realm we call the cosmos. But even more, Christ is the man, the second Adam, now installed in heaven at thy right hand as supreme potentate, as Adam over things visible and invisible. And then marvelous to us is that from that utterly supreme context, Christ is said to be head of the body, the church. It was thy good pleasure that all the fullness of deity dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things back to yourself, Father, things in the heavens, things on the earth. And blessed cross, sweet cross of Christ, it was there that thy blood was spilled. And through the eternal blood of the covenant, peace with all things made. We have seen further that our reconciliation was achieved through thy fleshly body. Thy purpose in this life is then the steady, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in order to present us holy, blameless, beyond reproach, if we continue in the faith, firmly established, not carried away by strange teachings, not in agreement with the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now speak truth through thy word, O Lord, to our minds. Softness to our wills through thy spirit, and joy to our hearts as we marvel at the depth of the riches of thy love and grace to us. Amen. Colossians 1, 24, stand with me in spirit, and you may do that too in spirit, but Colossians 1, 24, through the end of the chapter and has been spoken. This is God's holy, inerrant, beautiful, breathed-out word. Paul says, 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister 
according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete, mature in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You may be seated. <clears throat> Go back to the reading that Larry gave from Ephesians 3. Or Ephesians 1, rather. No, 3. 3 through 14. And look at verse 10. Struck me as I heard the scripture because it ties in. Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles. Ephesians 6 chapters much more fleshed out. Colossians 4 chapters. Ephesians focus is ecclesiology doctrine of the church. Colossians focus Christology, doctrine of Christ. But look at verse 10. Paul says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies, the heavenly places. The witness of a gospel-preaching church is not just horizontal. There is testimony being made through the preaching and teaching and living to the rulers in the heavens, and not just angelic but demonic. There is a resonating of biblical gospel truth that goes out. And you see how this links back to Colossians 1, particularly verse 20, that this reconciliation effected by Christ has been by God through Christ to himself. And it's been a reconciliation of verse 20 of Colossians 1, things on earth and things in heaven. And we've discussed that, but Ephesians 3 links to that, that part of that reconciliation is 
and through biblical preaching and teaching and lives lived accordingly, there is a witness, there is a testimony being given to angels and demons as well as the saved and the not saved, the church visible, the church invisible. But verse 20 again, to make reconciliation, where, how? Through the blood of his cross. I have, we, I bore witness to this last week, but I have been mightily stirred and perplexed trying to comprehend the fullness of what effect did the blood of Christ on the cross have to the angelic realm. Now we touched on part of that last week, but it has struck me too, and we haven't even started the sermon yet, <laughs> But it has struck me, too, that when we think of the blood of Christ on the cross, we think of he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, First Peter. So we think of my sins on Jesus nailed to the cross. Extrapolate. Adam's sins nailed to the body of Jesus on the cross. But what sins are you thinking of? Certainly eating, taking the bite. Certainly the transference of guilt, blaming Eve and he who gave her to him and the host of sins. But do you realize that in a very real sense, Christ did not just take the sins of Adam, particular as a man, but he took the sin of Adam as the head of mankind. And now that that has been made and Christ is installed as the second Adam, he is supreme potentate over all things in the heavens and the earth. And we give testimony to that through singing scripture, biblical hymns. It's a wonder, glorious wonder. Well, back to Colossians 1, 24. On the verse 24, Calvin is marvelous. Listen to his words with comment. We know that there is so great a unity between Christ and his members that the name of Christ sometimes includes the whole body, as in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And I quote, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Calvin, while discoursing on the church, he comes to the conclusion that in Christ the same thing holds as in the human body. 
Therefore Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members. And in this way there are filled up those sufferings which the Father has appointed for his body by his decree. <clears throat> so the Father appoints afflictions. If he doesn't, then you have an Armenian God who operates by chance. The Father appoints afflictions to the body of Christ. And when those afflictions are received by the body of Christ, Christ suffers also. Hmm. It's Calvin. We should therefore bear in our minds and comfort them in afflictions that it is thus fixed and determined by the providence of God that we must be conformed to Christ in the endurance of the cross. <laughs> you catch that? It's Calvin again. It's fixed by God's purposes and providence that the members of the body, us, must be conformed to Christ in the endurance of the cross and that the fellowship that we have with him extends to this also. Deep waters. Calvin concludes saying, afflictions must be cheerfully endured inasmuch as they are profitable to the pious and promote the welfare of the whole church by adorning the doctrine of the gospel, end quote. Hmm. My problem is I can acknowledge with my head truth that I just can't quite live out yet. Been there, done that, yeah. Application. Samuel Rutherford says this, says it this way. Grace tested is better than grace. It is glory in its infancy. Grace tested by the furnace of affliction, by God's providential design, grace tested is better than grace. Oh, happy me, life is good, I've got everything going my way, singing in the rain. I like that movie, too. Grace tested is better than grace. It is glory in its infancy. He says elsewhere, and this has helped me, believe Christ and not his crosses. Don't make your assessment of Christ based on your circumstances. That's a fool's thought. 
you believe Christ and not his crosses that he gives you. In letter 29, he says, Know ye not that Christ ruleth you in the furnace of affliction? This is a quote then. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. It's Hosea, I think. He casteth his love on you when you are in the furnace of affliction. You might indeed be cast down if he brought you in and left you there, but when he leadeth you through the waters, think ye not that he has a sweet, soft, but firm hand. Hmm. And so Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because I'm sharing, filling up, he uses the word, the afflictions of Christ. Explanation. Paul says that the afflictions of the pious, the body of Christ, should be moved toward perfection as the members are conformed to their head. But what is this suffering for the afflictions of Christ? Well, this remarkable statement perhaps could best be understood considering the way Hebrew thought oscillates between corporate personality and individual personality. For instance, you see this in the scriptures constantly, the capacity of Hebrew thought. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are the two passages that speak of the fall of Satan. And in one, I remember not which one speaks, it starts off addressing the king of Tyre, an earthly king, but quickly shifts to addressing Lucifer. So also, Hebrew thought often shifts between individual and corporate personality. Example, Isaiah's portrayal of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 49, 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But Israel proved a disobedient servant, and the prophecy of the servant's triumph through suffering was destined to find fulfillment in one divine man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament reveals this person to be Jesus, who by his obedience, passion, and victory over death, fulfilled what was written regarding the servant of the Lord. And thus is proclaimed as a light to the nations, as the agent of God's grace throughout the world. But the servant's identity which narrowed in scope until it was concentrated in our Lord Jesus alone, 
has since his exaltation broadened out again and become corporate in his people. A remarkable thought. Thus, to take a notable New Testament example, Paul and Barnabas at Pisidian Antioch announced to the Jewish synagogue members in light of their opposition to the gospel that they will from now on turn to the Gentiles. And the authority quoted for this <laughs> is the same servant song we just cited. I just set you to be, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth, which is to say the servant's mission of a light to the nations is to be carried on by the representatives of Christ. Christ's death needed no supplement. The sacrificial death of Christ provided a once-for-all atonement. Nothing is lacking. But there are sufferings ordained, afflictions ordained for Christ's body, the church, which are shared by Christ with us, his body. He will not, does he not ask Saul Tarsus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, I wasn't, Lord. I was persecuting the rebels, the Christians. No, Saul, you're persecuting me. So this same suffering of affliction by and for the children of God would be spoken out by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Turn with me, please. 2 Corinthians 4. It's remarkable. I think it's safe to say 2 Corinthians 4 is a great elaboration on Colossians 1.24. So what is said in one verse in Colossians, let's read from 2 Corinthians 4 through the second or third. We'll see verse of chapter 5. Listen to these words very intently. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, that's Colossians 1.15. Back to 5, verse 5. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death isn't working us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, that's Colossians 1, 6, as it extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, not to our circumstances, not to our health, not to the relational challenges, while we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, while we're still in the fleshly body of this life, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. It's not that I want to die and be unclothed, have my spirit separated from my body. That's not my desire but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Kathy sees him. My naked eye doesn't. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Wow. Incredible scripture, rife with application to the life of this church at this season of time. Verse 26. Actually, verse 25 and 6, sorry. Here we have a commendation of the gospel that it is a wonderful secret of God. And it is not without good reason that Paul so frequently extols the gospel by bestowing upon it the highest commendations in his power. He nearly stumbles over himself with adjectives trying to praise the glorious riches of the gospel of Christ. Paul saw that it was a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek, so he uses magnificent terms to try to paint the dignity of the gospel, and calls it a sublime secret hidden for ages and generations, verse 26, from the beginning of the world. Now certainly God had given the first revelation of the gospel in what is called the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3:15, where he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise or crush, it's the same word, him on the heel. Question. That's the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. Why was not the man mentioned? 
He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. Why was not the man mentioned? Why just the woman? And what was this bruising of heel and head? You can see, even from that passage, the woman is named because Jesus had no biological father. So it was the seed of the woman particular. So even here, there is a hint in the direction that Eve got it, the scripture would suggest. But it was dim. It was not clear. And that's what Paul says. So it is wonderful how God had previous to the advent of Christ governed his church under dark coverings, both of words and of ceremonies, but suddenly burst forth in full brightness with the gospel. And while nothing was previously seen but external figures, Christ was now exhibited, bringing with him the full truth of what had been concealed. Hmm. With reference to 26, an old, I learned it in Sunday school, the new was in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new covenant was in the old covenant concealed. The old covenant is in the new covenant revealed. That the whole world, which up to this time has been estranged from God, is now called to the hope of salvation and the same inheritance of eternal life offered to all an attentive, Calvin says, an attentive consideration of these things constrains us to reverence and adoration of this mystery which Paul claims. 27. To whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Doctrinally, it's of interest that Ephesians presents the mystery hidden through the ages was that God would bring Jew and Gentile together through Christ and create one new man. And that is the focus of Ephesians' mystery revealed. Colossians, with its Christological focus, gets even more specific. And the focus of the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think back, brethren, to John 14. Have I been so long with you, Philip? Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? If you see me, you see in the Father. And then, let me just go there. 
John 14, verse 20. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's Pauline. That's Colossians. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Johannine, John's writing, verse 20, In that day you'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. The mystery of this gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brethren, know that our dear sister embraced Christ and grew in her love for Christ. And it powerfully blessed me. I pray it has blessed you as well. Listen to the words of a Christmas hymn as these words tie up the doctrine of which we've been speaking. And then I will pray. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruin nature now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. <clears throat> Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, erase, stamp 
divine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee the lost regain, thee the life, the inner man, O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Behold the riches of the glory of God's mystery, which is Christ in us, our hope of glory. Father, what a blessed gift you have given to mankind and to ponder that from before the creation of the world you purposed this. Christ, the image of the invisible God, known as such even before you made the world. What wonder, what marvel, that you, the independent, self-existent, trying God, needing nothing, lacking nothing, in the overflow and the abounding magnificence of your love, determined that the second person, your beloved Son, would become part of a creation, would become their head, and would be installed as supreme potentate over things cosmic and on earth, and through his blood to bring reconciliation and to cover the sins of thy chosen, thy elect. How we praise you and honor you this day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.